Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 82 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm ready to get into part two of this um, episode. Yeah, let's do it. Without further ado, we'll do some Patreon shout outs first. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Johnny, Alana, Andrew, Miranda, Julia, Caitlin, Jai, Linda, Billy, Nick and Troy, Caitlin, Danny, Erin, Ben, Matthew, and Edwina. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are talking about today contains graphic descriptions and discusses sexual assault, both of which can be triggering for some people. So please look after yourself and exercise self-care when listening to this episode. I think it's generally accepted in the last couple of years of this case, the police work was fantastic, world-class. But for many, many years before that, during this search and on the receiving ends of millions, taxpayers, dollars, it was bad, Commissioner. There were mistakes made, there were missteps, there were omissions. Here's the bottom line in this case. This bloke, from 1988, for 10 years that we know, was attacking, assaulting, raping and murdering for 10 years. And yet he was never even a suspect. How is that possible and how is that anywhere near good police work. Because you're being very selective. It is an escalation of offending, which I would, I would like to say, had we been able to stop him in 1988, this would never have happened. Of course, we'd all want that. But I will not accept that uh, a 1988 investigation and a 1990 conviction would have stopped all of this. He was a convicted person in 1990, um, but he was released into the community. I'm just putting it out there that there are many people that we get processed through uh, that they don't all escalate onto this most heinous of crimes. In this case, he did. Let me ask you this. Do you think or suspect that he has killed or attacked anyone else? Is a, a very, very perverted rapist. The investigations uh, into this man will continue. Now, I'm not going to extrapolate, um, but well, I'm, we will, I'm we will, asking we will you, are there any? Oh, look, we will, of course, speak to him. 
Um, and yes, we do want to talk to him about serious crime. I'm not going to expand any more than that. But I'm talking about your concerns. I mean, you don't seriously expect him to give it up, do you? Anything. Look, we should never say never. We will never stop looking and we will never stop investigating until there's a resolution in regard to finding Sarah Spears and bringing forward before the courts, if we have the evidence, the person who is responsible for murdering, murdering Sarah. The main reason police believed that a taxi driver was involved in the Claremont killings was due to the belief that Sarah, Jane and Kira wouldn't have gotten into a car with a stranger. There had to be either some familiarity or implied trust there. But so far, inquiries with the taxi service hadn't nabbed them their man or men. Mayor Peter Wagers and his cab-driving pal Stephen Ross were still on the police's radar in the early 2000s as was their prime suspect, the lonely night driver and public servant Lance Williams. All three men would continue to have their names associated with this case until such time as it became obvious that they weren't involved. And that would take some time. In 2004, ABC's Australian Story did an episode on the Claremont case and the police investigation. It included damning interviews with Robin Knapper, a former British detective who went on to work at the University of Western Australia's Centre for Forensic Science. He believed the case needed a thorough review from outsiders, overseas experts, as had been done with a number of his cases in the UK to go over all available evidence. The show was met with sharp words and a sharp stare from many in the macro task force, as they believed their investigation had held up very well in the previously conducted 10 reviews. The 11th review, however, would change things. Off the back of this story, another review was ordered, bringing in a man named Paul Schramm from South Australia. He had extensive experience in homicide investigation, having been involved in the Snowtown murders. Forensic experts from the UK were also brought in, scientists David Barclay and Malcolm Boots. The review was extraordinary compared to those previous. For starters, it had a national and international panel, which left many macro officers feeling a bit tentative and sceptical. The panel members accessed all of the available evidence, with DNA and fibre evidence being a focus, there was quite a lot of foreign fibre evidence on the victims. One thing that immediately stood out to the experts was the distinct probability that the offender had escalated in his attacks over time. He hadn't murdered out of the blue. So a history of precursor crimes was likely. It was an area police needed to review in more detail. In all, the SRAM review recommended 33 things for macro to do, which included the testing of neglected forensic evidence for DNA profiles, hopefully of the offender. There was evidence that hadn't been tested at all and some not tested to its full extent. Some DNA and fibre evidence, for example, had been compared directly with Lance Williams and Peter Wagers, but nothing matched and no testing had been done beyond that. It was highly recommended the samples all be retested to obtain an offender profile with which to compare to other crimes. The review panel was also particularly interested in the telecom Telstra connections, which we detailed in part one. All of the Telstra evidence was collated and reviewed, and employees within the telco were interviewed. 23 people were investigated, and one in particular, an ex-police officer, was looked into intensively. 
He was surveilled because he'd failed a lie detector test and had no alibis for the nights of the murders, but he was later cleared by forensic evidence. While publicly, reports noted the review was praising the investigation, giving it the thumbs up, behind the scenes was a different story. In a secret report scientists Barclay and Boots provided, they noted that local officers with forensic written on their uniforms were not scientists, but officers who had risen through the ranks. Because specialist scientific training had been missed, Barclay and Boots noted macro systems had, quote, the worst forensic records and worst IT systems anywhere, even worse than no system at all. By the end of 2004, Macro was well and truly the longest-running and most expensive murder investigation in the state's history. And despite the SRAM Review's 33 recommendations and the damning report from the forensic scientists, the Macro Task Force continued to focus on Stephen Ross, Peter Wagers and Lance Williams. Macro was disbanded in October of 2005 and a new police unit, the Special Crime Squad, was put in charge of the investigation. This new squad, at first headed by Senior Sergeant Anthony Lee and then taken over by Senior Sergeant Jim Stanbury in 2008, wiped all previous assumptions and began retracing all of the evidence. They too looked into the taxi industry again but also saturated the streets with surveillance, covert cameras trying to identify men who trawled the area. They really focused on establishing these nighttime drivers, but went back and interviewed workmates of the victims, friends of friends, people who'd been out on those nights, etc. They gathered a huge amount of human intel. A few people were identified as persons of interest, a known sexual pervert in the area who had a gun and ammunition in his car. He knew where Kira's body had been dumped. Another man, a well-educated martial arts practitioner who knew both Sarah and Jane, he lived alone not far from Claremont, gave some misleading statements, false alibis for the nights Jane and Kira were last seen, and downplayed how well he knew Sarah. Inconclusive polygraph results also heightened suspicion around this guy, but ultimately the evidence didn't put him in the crosshairs. In the time after this, there were two big cases in WA that took a lot of time and resources away from special crimes. Those were the Pamela Lawrence-Andrew Mallard case and subsequent inquiry and the Corin Rainey case. We've spoken about the Rainey case before, but the Mallard inquiry, which was a landmark case for wrongful conviction, demanded a lot of attention and publicity. Andrew Mallard was wrongfully convicted of murdering Pamela Lawrence and jailed in 1995. In 2006, he was released. His appeal to the High Court successful. His conviction was quashed and the matter reinvestigated. Another man, Simon Rochford, was subsequently identified as a likely culprit, but he took his own life while in jail in the time after this. The inquiry into the investigation, which railroaded Andrew Mallard in the first place, is what took a lot of time away from police during these years. It was particularly damning of investigations done by some of the same officers in the upper echelons of the macro task force. Not all of them, and not every officer on this task force, we should note, but it highlighted the previously alleged tunnel vision and fixation on certain suspects. In August of 2008, Crime Investigation Australia released a documentary episode which aired for the first time and showed CCTV footage of Jane Rimmer with this mystery man. This was some 12 years after it had been obtained. 
Detective Senior Sergeant Jim Stanbury is present throughout the episode discussing the case with host Steve Lieberman. While Detective Stanbury had a number of his officers in special crimes pinched by major crimes during this time on secondment, him and his colleagues continued to work away and retrace every aspect of the case. Stanbury and Forensic Officer George Payton were reviewing evidence, wiping the slate clean and looking at crimes not previously connected to the Claremont case, including the sexual assault against Lisa in Karakata Cemetery some months before Sarah Spears disappeared. There were 4,000 exhibits they had to revisit and re-examine. Many hadn't been tested, as we said. Looking at the SRAM Review's recommendations, they next ordered for the samples AJM40 and AJM42 to be sent overseas for improved forensic testing. These samples were scrapings from the left-hand thumbnail of Kira Glennon, recovered during her autopsy but prior to this had been determined to be too degraded to test. Pathwest had previously carried out testing but were not experts just yet in a new method developed by UK forensic scientist Dr Jonathan Whittaker. This method was called LCN or low copy number profiling, which enabled DNA to be obtained from the tiniest of samples. A number of samples had been tested at the time and since, but not these particular ones and not with this advanced analysis. Dr Whittaker and another scientist named Andrew Talbot tested the previously unusable gunk from under Kira's thumbnail and obtained a male's DNA profile. This was a big deal and one of the biggest advancements in the case in a long time. With that profile, they were able to go back to Pathwest in Australia and have them compare it with other crimes. And it matched a case the team had recently reviewed and escalated, the Karakata attack on Lisa in 1995. The offender's profile wasn't on record though. Lisa's attack was still unsolved, but they had a connection now and a living, breathing witness who had had contact with the Claremont killer. It was the same guy, so find the rapist, find the killer. Special Crimes investigated the Karakata attack exhaustively, including flying overseas to the UK to interview a woman who'd found Lisa's sister's driver's licence, which she'd lost that night, They also went to New Zealand for more forensic testing and to the FBI in the US to further test in their labs. Alongside DNA, they were also testing a lot of fibre evidence, those blue fibres we mentioned found on Jane, Kira and now Lisa that actually connected fibres with her now too, in addition to the DNA. And they managed with exhaustive inquiries through manufacturers to conclusively link these fibres back to the blue graphite colour scheme within a Holden VS series Commodore, which was consistent with reported sightings. There were still reports of a van and Toyota Camry lingering though. Again, it was thought that these were possibly work vehicles and with the Telstra link, police again approached the telco for their records. This time for sales of their vehicles as they'd began looking for VS Commodores sold over the past decade. But again, Telstra's records were thin and it led police nowhere. Their review of old files also failed to highlight any needles in the haystack. The guy they were after wasn't hidden someplace in the files and spoken with early on. They had gone back over it all over the years and he wasn't there. They needed to go back further and look at more, less serious crimes from early on. They looked for something hinting at the future, something with sexual motivation, flashes, perverts, home invaders, 
snowdroppers, attempted abductions and sexual assaults. They went back through assaults in Rowe Park and Kings Park, noting a similar description of the attacker and even travelled to London again to talk with the woman who'd bitten her attacker's penis. All in all, special crimes officers noted similarities in 23 previously unconnected cases from this time period. In the meantime, the media had reported on the link between Caracatta and Claremont, the first piece of information potentially advancing the case in years. As a result, a number of public reports came in, even more attacks not reported to police at the time for various reasons, but then Special Crimes tasked a particular squad, who'd since exhausted leads looking into all sexually themed crimes in the broader Claremont area, to investigate records outside of the area, move the radius out an hour or so from Perth itself. Officers visited a storage facility and went through a bunch of old files from an operation called Jackhammer. Jackhammer was an operation which looked into attacks by a well-known neo-Nazi and his followers, targeting Asian people in the 90s. He'd since been jailed, this bloke, but strangely, as police looked through the boxes, they discovered a number of files detailing petty break-ins and some sexually motivated assaults from the Huntingdale area in the late 80s. These had occurred all within a one-kilometre radius of Gay Street. For some reason, whether it was error or police at the time associated these unsolved crimes with the neo-Nazi group, these files were stored in these boxes. There were also reports of another one and potentially two offenders in the broader region surrounding Huntingdale around this time. A guy named the Southside Rapist was mentioned, so potentially investigators at this time attributed these crimes to him. Whatever the case, they'd been put in this box and under fresh observation now, noted to be unsolved and of interest. One big ticket item of interest was a silk kimono contained within the associated physical evidence because it had a DNA sample, a dried semen stain on it. Police were able to obtain that and compare it with those they had, and it matched both the Caracatta and Claremont crimes. So now police had a link and a timeline of escalation to work with, This bloke had indeed started out small, snow dropping and breaking into homes, etc., moved on to rape and finally murder. But his DNA wasn't on file. They still didn't know who this guy was. So special crimes dug deeper into the other Huntingdale attacks for clues and discovered in 1988 a man wearing a woman's nightie had opened a sliding door during an attempted break-in and he'd left behind four fingerprints. It was highly likely this was the same guy from the kimono attack, only a few hundred metres away, so police ran his fingerprints through updated records and they got a hit. The fingerprints matched a guy who'd committed an assault back in 1990, but they didn't have his DNA on file, just the prints. The guy was a Telstra technician and he'd attended the Hollywood hospital during work hours one time and attacked a female social worker while she was working at her desk. He'd gagged her and dragged her across the room. She fought back and he all of a sudden gave up and started apologising. The guy's name was Bradley Robert Edwards. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was mid-afternoon on May the 7th, 1990, and Wendy Davis was working at the Hollywood Hospital in Nedlands. Wendy was a senior social worker in the palliative care area. She was 40 years old at this time and a mother of three. She was at her desk, immersed in her work, hurrying to finish so she could get home for her daughter's 11th birthday, when she heard a voice behind her ask, Is it okay if I use the toilet? Wendy swiveled her chair and saw a young telecom worker, all of 20, 21 years old. She nodded and noticed the subsequent flush of the toilet and thought, geez, he went quickly, as it happened immediately after the guy had gone into the bathroom. Then suddenly, Wendy felt a hand on her shoulder and another hand over her mouth with some form of material gagging her. She was pulled off her chair by this young telecom worker and dragged into the toilet area, which was sort of like a small utility room. Wendy was shocked and terrified. She thought she was going to die and she couldn't breathe because she thought this material was covered in some kind of substance. But when she realised it wasn't and she could breathe, she fought back, twisted herself and kicked the young worker several times. The next moment, the pressure was released and Wendy fell away. The young man had let her go and he had this strange glaze-over look in his eyes, like he'd completely disassociated. He began saying he was sorry Wendy took off to the safety of other staff and hospital security came and apprehended the telco worker. They discovered on his person along with the gag he had cable ties also. This indicated that he had put some planning into this and wanted to sexually assault Wendy. Yet Bradley Edwards, the telecom worker, was only charged with common assault, not a more serious offence indicating a sexual nature to the crime. The magistrate clearly recognised it and ordered Edwards to undergo a sexual offender rehabilitation program for eight months. But otherwise, he received two years probation and his rap sheet didn't, on the face of it, show an offence of a sexual nature. Edwards, who was living in Huntingdale at the time, wasn't subsequently looked at for the unsolved Huntingdale Prowler incidents from some two years earlier and the attack on Wendy was downplayed. A telecom company rep visited Wendy, referring to Edwards as young Bradley, advocating for his character and saying that he'd been stressed due to relationship infidelity and simply snapped. Wendy said that reaction wasn't normal behaviour for someone with those life problems. But Bradley Edwards kept his job at telecom and was later promoted. So police had this report outlining this crime from the old Jackhammer archives. They had Edward's fingerprints connecting him to the Huntingdale crimes, the kimono to the Karakata and Claremont attacks, but they needed his DNA to definitively prove he was the guy. So they went about obtaining this surreptitiously. Special crimes followed Bradley Edwards to a cinema one day. They sat behind him and when the movie was over, he discarded a bottle of Sprite. The officers took it and obtained his DNA profile. It matched and showed a clear link between Bradley Edwards and the crimes. Police had their guy, and they had a mountainous case ahead of them to build and prove. On the 22nd of December 2016, 
Police arrested Bradley Edwards at his home in Kewdale. He was subsequently charged with the three murders, rapes and prowler offences. Edwards denied any involvement, protesting his innocence as officers arrested him and executed search warrants. Boxes lined the hallway as police searched the place. Edwards said it was just him and his stepdaughter who lived there. His wife had moved out some time ago. His work vehicle, a white Holden station wagon, was parked in the driveway. Inside it was his technician's toolbox, and inside that, two knives, one strikingly similar to the one found by the horse riders near to where Jane Rimmer's body was found. Searches of Edward's property and his computer proved to be very revealing for police. They located extreme BDSM imagery, a controversial hardcore porn film entitled Forced Entry, which Edwards tried to delete but tech experts recovered. He'd visited almost 4,000 pornographic websites and had either written, edited or downloaded a series of violent erotica stories. These were quite disturbing to say the least, one which I'm sorry to say was actually entitled Chloe bore striking similarities to the attack on Lisa in Karakata. Most all of them except one involved abduction and sexual assault and implied the women wouldn't be leaving afterwards. Police also located a box of sex toys, women's underwear with holes cut in them and plastic sandwich bags which contained hair ties and Edward's semen. He'd masturbated into a number of these sealed bags, apparently. And if all of that wasn't disturbing enough, they also discovered several Facebook profiles which Edward used, calling himself the boogeyman, one, two, three, etc., through to number eight, which he seemingly used to stalk people online. The news of Bradley Edward's arrest hit Perth like a ton of bricks, overwhelming emotion throughout the city, People literally crying at the apex of this long-running, arduous investigation. The trial was to come and it would be huge, but for now, Bradley Edwards continued to deny everything to do with these crimes. He had no idea what police were talking about. He was being picked on for some reason. Even with the DNA evidence putting him at the crime scenes with the victims, he still had no idea. He didn't know the victims. He'd never been to any of the areas they'd been found had never even been to Claremont that he could recall, maybe to fix a phone or two. He said he had no idea why he was in the crosshairs and how his DNA got on the kimono and all of the victims. Bradley Edwards claimed he was just an ordinary bloke. He had a good job at Telstra, was involved in his local sports club, even won some community awards. He came across as a bit of a nerd and a loner, not a narcissistic psychopath, which he'd later be labelled. Prior to the trial, due to the graphic nature of evidence and the publicity surrounding the case, the prosecution applied for a trial by judge only, no jury. This was granted, and the trial commenced at the end of November in 2019. There's an entire podcast dedicated to the trial of this case. Indeed, it's probably what most people have heard and know about the case from this trial coverage at the time. It was huge news here in Australia and especially WA. There's over 100 episodes. They did one a day on that Claremont Trial podcast, so if you're into all that detail, go and check it out. For our purposes, we'll cover off the main points. The initial nine charges were consolidated into eight, which Bradley Edwards was to face at trial. He denied all charges right up until the pre-trial hearing in October of 2018 when he pleaded guilty to the Karakata and Huntingdale attacks. 
This was said to be a tactical decision by Edward's legal team to plead guilty to the charges that didn't have the same weight and controversy and to focus on the crimes he was pleading not guilty to, the murders. His defence team thought there was a lack of evidence surrounding those charges. The details of what we've already outlaid were all presented at trial with respect to the factual evidence anyway. The DNA matches, the fibre analysis matches, the inconsistencies in Edward's own stories, police were able to place him via bank and phone records, etc., in areas and attending places he said he'd never been. There was also the use of propensity evidence, which is a type of circumstantial evidence, similar fact evidence of a person's conduct or character and their tendencies. This evidence didn't necessarily speak to the specific charges, but added to the likelihood Edwards may have done it. So the Telstra living witness evidence is an example of this. Over 200 witnesses gave evidence at trial, which included both friends and relatives of Edwards and the victims, alongside police, experts, independent witnesses, etc. The trial was interrupted by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Throughout, Bradley Edwards sat there and doodled with a pencil. He turned his face away and never once spoke or looked at the victims' families. The trial wrapped up on the 25th of June 2020, seven months it went for, and there was definitely a feeling amongst the community of nervousness. People were worried Edwards was going to get off. The Sarah Spears charge in particular was worrisome and always going to be difficult to prove, as her body hadn't been found and there was no direct physical evidence to connect to Edwards. Justice Stephen Hall handed down a 619-page written verdict in which he found Bradley Edwards guilty of the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, but not that of Sarah Spears. He did note, however, it was more likely than not Edwards was involved in her disappearance. At sentencing some five months later, right before Christmas, Bradley Edwards was given a life term with a minimum of 40 years. That'd make him 92 if that day ever comes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bradley Edwards was seemingly an average suburban stepfather. He'd been married twice, held down a steady, normal job, was involved in his local community. Nothing stood out about him on the surface. But beneath the surface, there was something much darker and twisted about the man. A man who, prior to being identified through fingerprint and DNA analysis, wasn't one of the 18,000 people police looked into in the original Claremont investigation. Edwards was born on the 7th of December 1968 in the Wheatbelt town of Meriden, which is around three hours east of Perth. His father Bruce worked for Telecom too, and a young Bradley grew up living in a caravan with his dad, his mum Kay, and his younger brother. Edwards would later say he was quite close with his mum. 
A sister soon came along to join the Edwards family and they moved onto a property in Gay Street, Huntingdale. Bruce left telecom and moved into selling real estate by this time. Bradley was nicknamed Boggsy at high school and he was bullied for wearing glasses. Here he developed a self-perception that he was unattractive to women and indeed into his teens we began to see unhealthy ways in which he dealt with that. Local resident Glenis Newport later told of an encounter she had in Huntingdale with a teenager who she's sure was Bradley Edwards. She described walking one day and Edwards riding past on his bike. He then went down the embankment at the side of a nearby bridge, hopped off his bike and looked back at her before beginning to masturbate. She was convinced by the way he did this and his eye contact that he was directing it at her. Edwards went on to graduate from Gosnell's Senior High before commencing an apprenticeship as a technician with telecom, sort of following in his old man's footsteps. During his apprenticeship, Edwards made only passing connections, no real long-term friends. He'd had one girlfriend when he was 15, but she dumped him for an older boy. Edwards had no other girlfriends until 1988. He was 20 when he, in his own words, stole his best friend's girlfriend. They moved in together, but the relationship became strained pretty quickly. Edwards would say it was a confession of infidelity and pressure to marry his girlfriend that caused him to have a brain snap and attack Wendy Davis at the Hollywood Hospital in 1990. Their relationship continued, however. They married in November of 1991 and brought a home in Fountain Way, Huntingdale. Things were seemingly okay for a time. However, by mid-1994, Edwards had developed an all-consuming pastime and spent most of his nights on a dial-up internet connection in their spare bedroom. He also reportedly began visiting sex workers during this time, as a former brothel madam, Linda Watson, recalled. She believed Edwards was one of her clients during 1994-95. Edwards and his first wife again had marital problems, and she began an affair with a tradie who had done some work on her office building. At the beginning of 1995, this tradie actually moved into Edwards and his wife's home, which increased the strain on their relationship even more. And it was in February, just weeks later, Lisa was attacked in the Karakata Cemetery. Over the next couple of years, we'd hear repeated tales of a phantom Telstra or telecom worker offering lifts to damsels in distress through the Claremont and Cottesloe areas. Meanwhile, in January of 1996, a year after the tradie moved in, Edwards caught him and his wife kissing, so the pair moved out together. He appears to have tried to rekindle something with his first wife, inviting her to watch the Australia Day fireworks with him on January the 26th, 1996. She said no. The following day, the 27th, 18-year-old Sarah Spears disappeared off the street in Claremont. In early June, some five months later, Edwards heard from his wife that she's fallen pregnant with this tradie. Within the week, on June 9, Jane Rimmer vanished from Claremont, last seen on the CCTV. While the macro task force was established, Jane's body was found and the investigation was in its infancy, Edwards was navigating his divorce, which culminated in the sale of their matrimonial home in early March of 1997. On March the 15th, 27-year-old Kira Glennon was last seen walking the streets in Claremont, having left the Continental Hotel. Friends of his later told a tale of having plans with Edwards on this day and night, but he didn't show up, instead rocking up the following day with a lie about trying to reconcile with his ex. 
Two weeks later, Edwards met his second wife on a work call. Two days after that, Kira's body was found. He dated his second wife for just over three years before they bought a place together in Acton Avenue, Kewdale, and they married towards the end of the year 2000. It's been alleged Edwards visited Kira Glennon's grave during this time, some three years after her murder, and purposefully left behind a pair of her underwear which he'd taken. During the next decade, while the Spears, Glennon and Rimmer families grieved over the loss of their loved ones and police toiled away in the investigation, Bradley Edwards lived a low-key suburban life with his second wife and stepdaughter at their place in Kewdale. His partners would later recall that Edwards had an exceptionally thin penis. Otherwise, there was nothing exceptional about him. He was known as a reliable worker at Telstra and got promoted from field technician to an operations manager position. He and his wife joined the Kewdale Little Athletics and later the Belmont Little Athletics Clubs, where Edwards volunteered as a timekeeper and photographer. He joined the committee at Belmont and by 2007 was the club president. Photos of him from this time period showed a smiling man comfortable with his life and surroundings. He presented the same exterior to his neighbours, who thought of him as an unassuming tech head who played computer games and helped them on occasion with their electronics and connections. He received a community service award for his tireless efforts in little athletics, but on the home front, things weren't going so good. Edwards may not have been abducting and murdering women during this time, but pre-trial hearing evidence suggests his secret obsession with violent pornography continued to escalate and cause problems in his marriage. His wife reportedly felt terrified and feared for her life prior to their separation, around the time the media reported connections with the Caracatta and Claremont cases. Their relationship ended as Edwards approached his 48th birthday, and the outwardly ordinary suburbanite stepfather was only weeks away from finally being caught for the string of crimes he committed some two decades earlier. As is often the situation in serial killer cases, which span over a number of years, conjecture often comes into play as people theorise post-conviction about unsolved cases which could be connected to Bradley Edwards. One of our favourite hard-hitting TV journos, Chloe, Liam Bartlett, who we heard talking with WA Police Commissioner Chris Dawson in the introduction, has suggested that Sarah Spears may not have been Edwards' first victim, and noted that police told the father of a fourth missing woman that his daughter was probably a victim of the Claremont killer. 22-year-old Julie Cutler disappeared on the 20th of June 1988 after she'd attended a work function at the Parmelia Hilton Hotel in Perth CBD. Her body has never been found, but her car, a four-door Fiat, was found two days later in the ocean at Cottesloe Beach. None of Julie's belongings were in there, just a couple of champagne flutes from the staff function she had attended. The back seat of her car had actually washed up on the shore, but police later discovered her back doors didn't actually unlock and open, so they theorised that someone had maybe hidden in the back and forced Julie to drive someplace. She left the hotel around 12.30am and police received information which led them to believe she may have visited the Burswood Casino thereafter but no trace of her has ever been found aside from the car, and none of her belongings, clothing, bags, etc. were found on the beach surrounding where the car was either. So the police theory is that whatever happened to Julie happened elsewhere and her car was dumped there in the early morning hours, 
prior to daybreak when swimmers and beach walkers, etc., arrived on the scene. 19-year-old Lisa Brown was last seen on the 10th of November 1998. Lisa was a mother of two and reportedly a sex worker at this time. She was last seen in Highgate. She had a thin build, shoulder-length brown hair, was wearing a blue woolen jacket, blue jeans and black high-heeled boots. Lisa and her boyfriend parted ways around 12.30am. CCTV at a service station nearby observed them on camera two hours before this time. Her boyfriend said he last saw her walking down Brisbane Street turning into Palmerston Street. This was the last reported sighting of Lisa. Police believe she subsequently met with foul play in the time after this. Lisa was estranged from her family and had developed a heroin habit and didn't have custody of her kids at this time. As recently as 2019, police were still investigating her disappearance, excavating a backyard in West Perth as part of their ongoing investigation into this cold case. Sarah McMahon was last seen on November 8, 2000, after leaving her place of work in Claremont, after which she drove to Bassendine. She has never been seen again. Her Ford Meteor was located 12 days later in the car park of Swan District Hospital and her mobile phone was found on the median strip of the Great Northern Highway. There was an inquest into Sarah's death in 2012 at which evidence was tendered that four calls were made to Sarah's phone the day she was last seen. Two were from friends and family and the other was from a guy named Donald Morey. Maury, in his 60s at this time, was serving a 13-year sentence by this stage for the attempted murder of a woman in 2003. She was a sex worker, Judy will call her. She'd taken a ride with Maury out to Helena Valley, at which time Maury tried to strangle her with a length of rope. She escaped and he denied the offence, but was convicted off the back of his DNA being found on her hair extensions. He drove a Holden Commodore station wagon too, incidentally. Donald Morey had forged a bit of a friendship with Sarah McMahon and there were reports in the coronial documents that Sarah had told someone she was involved in selling drugs with or for Morey in some kind of fashion. A woman gave evidence at the inquest implicating Morey that she'd seen a female, naked, with blood on her and rope around her neck, deceased on Morey's bed at his house around the time Sarah was last seen. And she alleged her friend had been called by Maury to help clean up because he had gone and killed this girl. Charges against Donald Maury in Sarah McMahon's case have never been laid and he's denied any involvement, stating he believes Sarah is alive and overseas. But he's also been mentioned in relation to the murder of Darylene Oogle, whose body was found in April 2003. This was not far from Maury's home in Chidlow, and not far from where he attacked Judy in Helena Valley. Judy and Darylene knew one another from their work, but Maury has denied any involvement in that crime too. There are even more unsolved cases that could get thrown into the mix here, but it'd be really diving down the rabbit hole for the sake of it. It's certainly possible Bradley Edwards, the Claremont killer, may have been involved in some of these crimes and disappearances, but it's also very possible there's another killer out there who unlike Mr Edwards, simply hasn't been caught yet. And that's it when it comes to the Claremont serial murders, Chloe. Your thoughts? Yeah, this is such a sad case. And just for how long it went on, I feel like most of my adult life there was talk of this case, you know, being unsolved and then the trial, it just seemed to go on for so long. I can't imagine what that was like for the families involved. 
I just feel awful for the people involved and the lives lost, just so unnecessary as always, I guess. I don't really have much more to say than that. Yeah, I think particularly for the Spears family too, you know, not not finding Sarah and having that closure is very sad. You know, we we said a lot, a lot of people were right across the coverage of, of this throughout the trial. It was huge news. So, you know, rather than dwell on that aspect, we tried to tell it our own way, focus on the on the trail of the lesser-known crimes, the victims in part one, and looking at the investigation, Edwards in his past and the possibility of other victims and other killers towards the end there too. So I'm not sure how much these episodes will impact um, Telstra's share price, probably very little, but, yeah, it was obviously, as the reviews pointed out, a transitional time for <laughs> uh, you know, both companies and the police when it came to record-keeping and systems, etc. A lot of stuff was lost in the wash, which caused this to be dragged out over a long period of time, a lot of suffering for the families, as you said, Chloe. But in the end, you know, it was good old-fashioned police work from uh, mm. Senior Sergeant Jim Stanberry and his colleagues in the special crimes there that got the breakthrough, which led to catching the killer. So hats off to them. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, we definitely need a happy thought after going through reading those things. What's yours this week? Well, it's still a few weeks away, but uh, my wife very kindly advised me uh, yesterday that uh, it's Father's Day coming up, so um, just to have a bit of a think about what I would like or like to do. So oh, nice. uh, that's that's exciting. Uh, first one where I've got three daughters, so yeah. that's be a nice little celebration and uh yeah, that's that's my my happy thought this week. What about you? Nice. Um, well, also feel like I want to give an update on my icy spicy Indian that I had last time, which was really good Indian. <laughs> yes, please. But I it was a mistake to get that night because we had a severe weather warning, which I did not realize, and a massive tree fell down in the five minutes it took me to go collect the food and come home and I was trapped outside of my house. <laughs> um, so I mean it wasn't ideal. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's, um, yeah, that's icy and spicy in and of itself, isn't it? <laughs> it really wasn't the whole experience. And, I mean, yeah. it's fine. We cleared the tree and ate the Indian. We actually ate the Indian then cleared the tree. Good, good. You got your priorities in order. That's good, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So after that eventful happy thought, that's pretty much it from me. Uh, but do keep your eye out in our Facebook group if you are a part of it. We're going to drop some merch deals the next little while, um, probably by the shortly after this episode comes out. Yeah, we'll figure out. So we've got some coffee cups and we've got T-shirts in a couple of different colours and uh, both genders and a bunch of different sizes. So we'll we'll figure out what we're going to do. We'll try and give some things away and do some yep. stuff for cheap or, or whatever. Um, so keep an eye out for that. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. You can support the current free content we make and get all of our bonus content as well alongside uh, ad-free early release regular episodes. We have a Patreon episode coming out next week, which will be the final one in our Urban Legends series. And that's it from us for now. We'll catch you all again soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
plastic sandwich bags which contained hair ties and Edward's semen. He'd masturbated into a number of these sealed bags, apparently. Ugh. <laughs> Is it a I've purposefully dug the boot in a bit about his exceptionally thin penis. <laughs> that was reported. Should I not say that, though? Like, I did think that. Probably not. Can you just cut it? It doesn't. It's funny, though. It's, well, yeah, it is funny. 